Hello and welcome to Zero Room Audio Zine. So whilst this I last said that, produced by members of a Dwaz local group in Bracknell, Zero Room was a fanzine on cassette which made it to seven issues between 1984 and 1987. I was 19 back then, now I'm 55 and Zero Room's coming back, a new issue at last. More on that later. While we prepare for that particular moment, we wanted to bring you a bonus episode to mark the 60th anniversary and one of the architects of the show we all love. My first memory of David Whittaker was reading his novelisation of Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks and wondering about all that nonsense on the common. The Blu-ray documentary on the collection, season two, Looking for David, filled in some of the gaps in our knowledge about him. And now there's a new biography of the man who was Doctor Who's first story editor. David Whittaker in an exciting adventure with television is an intoxicating study, a meticulously researched page-turner that fills in the rest by Simon Guerrier. In this bonus episode, we'll take you to Manchester's Portico Library, where the book's being launched, Simon in conversation with Caroline Whitehead, a trustee of the Portico. But before we hear them, let's remind ourselves of three of David Whittaker's finest moments, from The Edge of Destruction, Evil of the Daleks, and The Ambassadors of Death. How dare you! Do you realise, you stupid old man, that you'd have died in the cave of Skulls if Ian hadn't made fire for oh, you? I tried. And what about what we went through against the Daleks? Not just for us, but for you and Susan too. And all because you tricked us into going down to the city. But I... Uh, Accuse us! You ought to go down on your hands and knees and thank us. Even if I could trust the Daleks, even if they set us free, we still couldn't go back to Earth. I suppose I might try and take you all to another universe. I might even try and take you to my own planet. Your own? Yes. Yes, I, I live a long, long way away from Earth. Hello, Van Leiden. What is the capital of Australia? We are not cleared for re-entry. How many beans make five? Hello, Space Control. This is Recovery 7. Will you clear us for re-entry? Van Leiden. not cleared for re-entry. Right, cut it open. Throughout the 60 years of Doctor Who, what would you say is the legacy from David Whittaker? Okay, David Whittaker was the first story editor of Doctor Who when it began in 1963. He wrote more episodes of Doctor Who in the 1960s than anybody else. Uh, and he also wrote books and comics and a stage play and additional material on the second of the Dalek movies. So he's all across Doctor Who in the 60s. I think as we approach the 60th anniversary, there are a number of things that are very David Whittaker coming up. One of which is that the first of the TV specials, The Star Beast, is an adaptation of a comic strip from the early 1980s. And that idea that the multimedia bit of Doctor Who feeds into the TV show, that it's not just a derivative of the TV show, but it's a kind of two-way process, that what happens in the books and the comics draw from the TV show, and then the TV show draws from the books and the comics. Mm. That is David Whittaker to a T. He was doing that in the 60s, introducing ideas and concepts in the comics and the books that he then fed into the TV episodes. For example, the Dalek Emperor that first appears in the Dalek book in September 1964 and then appears on screen in The Evil of the Daleks in 1967. This is the guy that commissioned the Daleks. He's probably the guy that coined the word exterminate. It's in a memo that he wrote in July 1963 that the word exterminate is first used in relation to the Daleks. It doesn't appear in the 26-page storyline that Terry Nation wrote that David Whittaker then summarised in a paragraph and added exterminate. So I think that's him. I'm waiting for the lawyers 
to <laughs> come at me on that one. And I also think he encouraged writers while he was chair of the Writers Guild between 1966 and 1968. He asked a guy called Mac Hulk, who also was a Doctor Who writer, to write a guide for writers. So advice on how to get published, how to get into television, this sort of thing. The Writers Guide produced in 1969 sold out within weeks. They produced a second edition within a year that was about four times as big. And off the back of that... Mac Hulk thought there's a market in this. So he set up a sort of mail order writer school that, that people like Terence Dix contributed to. And he also wrote a book called Writing for Television in the 1970s, which became a sort of industry Bible. Mm. And people like Andrew Cartmel, who was script editor of Doctor Who in the 80s, says the book was how he got into television. But also off the back of this market of people being interested in the mechanics of television, Matt Hulk and Terence Dix wrote The Making of Doctor Who in 1972, the first kind of behind-the-scenes thing on Doctor Who. So the whole industry of being interested in how Doctor Who is made starts with that book, which began because David Whittaker said we should open up television to people. You had your work cut out because David Whittaker, it's a common name. Yes. Very common name. There's lots of David Whittakers about. Yes, it's a common name. But David Whittaker had a very broad career... And lots of people with the same name also overlapped in that kind of career. Isn't somebody ISBN came up with the ISBN? Yeah, so David Whittaker worked in publishing and wrote books, mm. but he's not the David Whittaker who was the editor of the bookseller and was one of the people who came up with ISBN. David Whittaker was an actor, but he's not the David Whittaker who is in things like Alfreda's own pet. David Whittaker played sport and tennis, but he's not the hockey international David Whittaker. <laughs> Um, and there, were, there, there was a Reverend David Whittaker who wrote oh. lots of letters to newspapers in the 60s. He's not the same David Whittaker. Uh, yes, there was, a, there was a certain amount of um, pulling my hair out, trying to make sure yeah. that I had the right one. The, the right one, yeah. He died in 1980. Why write a book about him? That's a good question. He died 4th of February 1980. So what is now Doctor Who magazine, the journal of the history of Doctor Who, had launched, what, two months, three months before that, and had begun a process of interviewing the cast and crew of Doctor Who in a more professional and rigorous way fanzines and fan groups had been doing. And so they just missed David Whittaker. The thing that I kept coming back to in researching the history of Doctor Who for Doctor Who magazine and other publications was this guy didn't have a voice. He's present but doesn't have a voice. Things that were said about him, I could see weren't quite right. Mm. And things were being repeated in subtitles of DVDs and on making of documentaries and things like that, which weren't quite right. And then I started to spot bits of his real life that fed into the stories he wrote for Doctor Who. Mm. And once I got onto that, I thought, there's something big here. This will make a sort of 5,000 word article for Doctor Who magazine. And it got out of hand. <laughs> yeah, I can see. How many pages is there? It's 460 pages. It's 180,000 words. I think if he was looking down, he'd like that, that you want to give him a voice, because he's an activist, bit of an activist. This man got on a plane to Moscow to campaign and demonstrate, didn't he? He did, yeah. 
you yeah. Know. In July 1969, he went to Moscow mm. to the International Writers' Congress to protest the Soviet treatment of Solzhenitsyn. It's extraordinary, not, not least because I think one of the reasons he did that was because he was supposed to be writing something and a classic writer, just anything other than do the typing. But he was doing that at the time that he was writing the first episodes of The Ambassadors of Death, a 1970 Doctor Who story, which is all about a conspiracy. And he goes to Moscow. The issue with Solzhenitsyn is that the Writers Guild voted to send two delegates to protest what was happening, but they couldn't get anything on the agenda of the Congress because the Soviet hosts would veto it. Of course, yeah. So how do you raise something that you can't put on the agenda? So there's a whole kind of shenanigans of talking to lawyers and talking to, basically, how do you work the bureaucracy so that you can get something onto the floor for mm -hmm. debate? And what you've got is David Whittaker, who is the former story editor of Doctor Who, falling out with George Markstein, who's the former story editor, script editor of The Prisoner. He's the bald guy in the title sequence of The Prisoner that Patrick McGowan resigns to. Anyone remember that? Yeah? These are, these are my people. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I'm just checking. <laughs> David Whisker writes a report of what he does and the, the tricks they use to get this onto the floor and how they're going to do it. And it reads like the sort of tricksy thing that Doctor Who or The Prisoner would do. Mm. And it massively doesn't work. It's not like on TV. This is real life. Mm. And there's a huge scandal about it. And he comes back thinking he's done an amazing job. And then it gets into the press and people who think he should never have gone, that the Writers Guild shouldn't be involved in international politics, that it should just be about the rights of writing and contracts. There are people who think he hasn't gone far enough. There are people who think he's capitulated. There's a scandal later in the year where the, the then chair has to step down. And that makes the newspapers. The Guardian report says this is all stemming from the trip to Moscow. Mm. In the AGM of the Writers Guild in May 1970, so a year after he went, this all erupts again. There's a big fight. There's a big argument. He's had poison pen letters. He's had people targeting people he works for. He wrote a letter in 1971 basically saying this had ruined his career and that having been prolific, he then has nothing. Also, that it ruined his wife's career. And she was a very prolific actress mm. and was, had a, a major role in the Foresight Saga, which was really big at the time. And in 1970, the Foresight Saga is repeated. Some of her other work is repeated, but nothing new. Mm. And she basically goes for sort of 18 months, two years, mm. not being on television. Right. In modern parlance, we'd call that being cancelled. He certainly felt that's what had happened to him. And he went to Australia to, to start again in film and TV there. He connected with the music hall. That's a bit lighter, isn't it? Sitcom. He knew Tony Hancock, didn't he? But yeah, so David joined the BBC in 1957, having written a TV play that was broadcast in the summer of 1957. He went in for a meeting with the script department to pitch other plays. And they said, we've got a staff job. There's a possibility that David Whittaker was maternity cover for Judith Carr, because he arrives just before she leaves to go and have her daughter, Tacey. And then while doing childcare, she wrote The Tiger Who Came to Tea and the Mog books. What's fascinating about looking at her career and any of the other writers of this period is the range of stuff they did. So Judith Carr's last thing for TV, an adaptation of a French account of a real life case in the 19th century of a woman accused of poisoning her husband. It's not very Tiger Who Came to Tea at all. No. 
what they would do, Dick Fiddy at the BFI was basically saying there was no training in writing for television at that time. What you did was you wrote for everything and you wrote comedy and you wrote links and you wrote for musical and you did drama and you did anything that they would throw at you, anything that needed doing or tidying up or being made practical, the staff writers took on. But if you found your niche, that's what you stuck at. And so David's first year, he's doing all sorts of things. He wrote uh, musicals, he wrote uh, 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 adaptations of musicals, he, he did uh, song and dance stuff, he did the BBC's Christmas show, all of these sorts of things, working with everybody. Mm. He then, in 1962, moves from being script editor of Light Entertainment to being script editor of the prestigious Sunday Night Play, the sort of serious drama thing. While he's overseeing this serious highbrow drama, as a freelancer in his own time, he's writing episodes of the soap opera Compact. They, they couldn't be more different. Mm. And from that, and having had this experience in light entertainment, he's put on Doctor Who. And I think part of the reason he, of all the people in the, the, the department at the time, was put on Doctor Who was because he'd done everything and understood what you could get. So when he was doing light entertainment, he was doing stuff for the magician David Nixon. And David Nixon would have a thing where he'd be introducing a singer, but he would put his hands up to the camera and open his hands, and there would be the singer stood on his hands. And they used a sort of chunky technology called uh, inlay at, at the time. That you can see in the first episode of the Dalek serial. They're using inlay to show the Dalek city. Uh-huh. And it, it's a, a big process. It, it involves basically projecting a film. So it takes up quite a lot of the studio. Barbara, Doctor, over here. Oh, it's fascinating. A city. A huge city. <laughs> so if you have an effect like that, you've got less space for sets. David got all of that mm. and understood the limits how far you could push the technology and get it into the studio and make it practical. And that's really important to Doctor Who. Mm. But all of his sitcom stuff as well, all the stuff about structuring, how do you put familiar characters in new situations each week so that you can keep the thing going and produce 39 episodes a year, that applies to sitcom and it then applies to Doctor Who. I want to talk about the diversity back in 63. Okay. And I'm talking protected characteristics. I'm talking women, people of colour as well. Because it wasn't easy in 1963, but there was Verity Lambert. Yes. So the first producer of Doctor Who, Verity Lambert, she was 27. When That's she... so young, isn't it? It's excellent, though. It's so young. And that was a progressive bit of employment. Uh, Sidney Newman, the head of drama, brought her over. She had been a production assistant at ABC, and he made her a producer, so so Mm. promoted her. The first director was Warris Hussain, uh, British-Asian is the the way he describes himself, also gay. Sidney Newman, the head of department, was a Canadian with... He wouldn't admit it, but I suspect he had quite left-wing pushing into communist politics. He was part of a wave of Canadian and American TV crew, people who came over after House Un-American activities. More than anything, not because they were facing any kind of persecution, but because television drama in America got very safe. 
and advertisers didn't want anything that touched on social issues or mm -hmm. things. You could just do more interesting work in the UK. And there's various people. I spoke to Alvin Rakoff. He was a similar director, a Canadian who'd come over and was basically saying the only way you could do issues-based drama was if you were Rod Serling and you set it in space and the Twilight Zone was him hiding all of these social issues uh, in drama by going, no, it's a sort of horror sci-fi thing. What are yeah, you talking yeah, about? Yeah. It's an excursion into the odd and into the very, very different. Doctor Who were a bunch of outsiders. And you can see it in the paperwork. They are pushing against a rather chummy, Oxbridgey, school tie-ish tradition yes. at the BBC. And loads of people that I spoke to and in the paperwork assumed that's who David Whittaker was. But he wasn't. He, he wasn't university uh, at all. He, he described himself as being university theatre. So when I put this to Warris Hussein, he said, the irony is that I went to Cambridge and when I wanted to be a director at the BBC, I went to the careers person and said, I'd like to be a director at the BBC, please. And they had me interviewed the next day and I was working there within weeks. <laughs> Warris said, actually, he had all the credentials and the connections and things that David didn't. And he said, and you can see the difference. Warris Hussein finished university, wanted to be a director got in the door straight away and as he said and they put me on children's television and which I didn't want to do but I was in yeah David Whittaker wanted to he applied to RADA in 1949 and didn't get in he worked in amateur dramatics in 1950 and that led to a, a job in rep on stage in 1951 he started sending stuff into the BBC from early 1956 and his First play was commissioned in 1957 and he had a job from October 1957. So that's seven years of graft to get into that position yeah. that Warris Hussein just said, can you get me an interview? But that culture, Warris Hussein has talked about quite a lot and we chatted about it. So he said people would be openly sexist and to Verity Lambert, they'd be anti-Semitic to her face. They would say within her hearing that she'd only got the job because she slept with the boss. Um, they were racist to Warris Hussein. So he said either there were those that would say it to your face and there were those who would say it in your hearing. Yeah. So I said, was David Whitaker one of those? And his answer was really interesting. He said he might have said it behind my back, but he never said it in front of me. He was always the perfect gentleman. Mm. And the issue was always the work. David Whitaker doesn't seem to have had any problem working for a woman producer. No, Verity Lambert like was not the only woman producer he worked for. Mm. There's quite a lot of dinosaur behaviour in the paperwork. The, the, the head of design at the BBC in 1963 wouldn't copy Verity Lambert, the producer of Doctor Who, into memos about Doctor Who. Mm. So one of the reasons there's a, there's a massive overspend on the pilot episode of Doctor Who, recorded in September 1963, is because a whole load of decisions have been made without the producer knowing, and they've just upped the cost. And there was a budget for £500 to make the TARDIS set and the police box. And by the time it goes before the cameras, it's £4,000. <laughs> and the head of design's response to this is to go, she doesn't know what she's doing and you should cancel Doctor Who. 
that's the kind of stuff that they're dealing with and she has to sort out mm. and she goes to joanna spicer who was the, the uh, program coordinator as we call it now and they go through the budget and also i suspect go these bloody men and they sort it out yeah and david is in that because to balance the books he writes a short two-part story all set within the tardis that's cheap to do called the edge of destruction and yeah. that's all the way of dealing with these guys who just feel they can behave like they, like they want. The ship refused to destroy itself. Yes, yes. The defence mechanism stopped the ship and it's been trying to tell us so ever since. Well, I put it to you, Your Honour, uh, that the evidence stacked up <laughs> shows that he's not sexist or discriminatory in any way. Because he seems to support when that kind of constructive... Um, bringing down a Verity and the, the team and, and whatever, when that was going on, he tried to find solutions as opposed yes. to yes. dropping her in the duo or whatever. Yes, let's, let's not go too far with this. Yeah. He's not a feminist. Yeah, but there's a fine line. You know, no, he's of his time. Mm. He wrote a story, a Doctor Who story set in Palestine. The sort of character of Saladin is, is clearly written to be played by a white actor. I've spoken to a few people who, who raised the racial thing. There, there's mm. some very odd things going on in that. So it's set in Palestine, but there's a lot of Caribbean actors in the cast because they're the same. That's yeah. the thinking at the time. But then again, before Star Trek, they had a black astronaut. Yeah, yes, they did. Yes, they did. Doctor Who did have a black... Yeah, Earl Cameron plays an astronaut in The Tenth Planet in 1966. That, I wish I could put that at David Whittaker's door, but, but that was after his time. He was part of a culture and part of a time. Mm. And yet there are things that I find really remarkable. His attitude to working with women is really interesting. He was a womaniser, I've heard a couple of people say, but none of the women involved have a bad word to say about him. And when Toby Haydock, who is here somewhere, interviewed Pauline Devaney, who she was the co-writer and co-creator of Augustan Gators. And when she was a 19-year-old actor in rep and sharing digs with David Whittaker, he made a pass at her, her. And then when she said, no, I'm not interested, he left it at that and said, well, that's fine. Whereas she said, even 50 years later, still surprised by this, he didn't push it mm. he didn't try to persuade me he didn't make things awkward it was fine and you can hear as she tells toby that in the recording it's not on the documentary but it's in the recording you can hear she's still that's quite a thing yeah yeah so by the standards of the time mm. i think he was a, a bit of a gentleman yeah but that's not to get him off the hook yeah no, well, i think that's, that's the best we can do yeah it's the best we can do I was going to ask you, what is your favourite part about researching the book? I really like digging through archives and boxes of paperwork and just finding stuff and finding stuff I never knew was going to be there. One of the things that I found is a letter to David from William Heseltine, the press secretary to the Queen. And he wrote David a short letter in 1969 basically saying, no, the Queen is not going to give you permission to write a musical about Queen Victoria and John Brown, the story that later became Mrs Brown with Judy Dench. Yes. Um, I found nothing else about this proposal, but that's nuts. I found the first page of David's proposed novelisation of the Doctor Who story, The Enemy of the World, which was the last thing he was writing on. He must have signed a contract for that. So he submitted a synopsis in October 1979 
and he was dead on the 4th of February. So this was last things, which nobody knew existed. We knew that he'd submitted a synopsis, but we didn't know that he'd actually written anything. I found, yeah, all sorts of odd things. There's a photo of his parents with Charles Hawtrey. Oh, hello. And it turns out that David's dad was an accountant and represented Charles Hawtrey and various other people. I think there's quite a lot of the first doctor comes from David's dad, who was fired for insider trading and then was taken to court for stealing a car and was a bit of a maverick, but also charming. I think he was James Bond. Yeah, he's, <laughs> so there's something of that going on. Mm. But yeah, I found out, what are the other things that I found out? All sorts of, just the mad Didn't things. Did you find he, his what's it card when they, is it, when they have to go in the army? Yeah, so he probably didn't do national service, but he had an identity card. Yeah. And he kept his last identity card. Because until 1951, you had to be able to have it on you. So yeah, so that, we've got a copy of that in the book. Yes, um, I saw that and thought, Ernest Maxson was the producer of Morecambe and Wise in the mid-70s and mm. producer of the Les Dawson show and stuff, but really big figure. And about a week before I had to hand the book in, I made contact with Ernest Maxson's son. And he, on the 24th of June, 1967, was taken by his dad as the guests of David Whittaker to the set of episode seven of The Evil of the Daleks. The TARDIS Doctor! You will take the Dalek factor. You will spread it through the entire history of Earth. No. You can't make me do it. You can't. And as Paul said, his dad and David had worked together on light entertainment stuff for, for years. His dad was fairly senior at the BBC, but he couldn't have got in to the Doctor Who sets and meet, met the Daleks. That was all down to David. And he clearly pulled favours and stuff. But trying to research that and trying to find out a bit more about it, I found the most amazing story about a production that David and Ernest Maxson worked on. To celebrate Irving Berlin's 70th birthday, David wrote and spent months writing a play about his life, Berlin's life, that would use his music, like a jukebox musical now. This was a big production. So Riverside Studios in Hammersmith has got two big studios in it. They were going to use both. One for all the sets and the acting bits and one for all the dance routines and the musical numbers. They didn't have space for the orchestra, the live orchestra. So that was upstairs, what's now the bar at Riverside. And they piped the music, because it was a live production, they piped the music down into the studio so that everybody could hear it. Huge, lavish thing. Because it was so big and, and lavish and exciting and stuff, it got a bit of press coverage two or three days before it was on. And as a result of that press coverage, so it was announced on the Thursday and it was going to go out on Saturday. Mm. Between the Thursday and the Saturday in New York, Irving Berlin got wind of this and said, no, you're not. <gasps> I don't want an actor playing me on screen. So they had to rewrite it. And they came up with an idea where the guy they'd cast as Irving Berlin, an actor with the most amazing name of Gaylord Cavallero. Uh, That's great. So rather than playing Irving Berlin, he plays a journalist who's been commissioned to write a piece about Berlin. Mm. And the framework of the drama as broadcast is him telling his editor what he's found out. And then they would cut to the various people he's spoken to who would then do their bits of the drama 
that had been written with Berlin. This made Variety, the film and TV industry magazine in, in mm-hmm. uh, Los Angeles, because it was such a big story, where they basically went, yeah, it didn't really work. The music bits were good, but the story didn't really work. But it was a heroic failure. What they must have sweated through to get something on screen and not just cancel it and whatever is extraordinary. And clearly bonded these two, David Whittaker and Ernest Maxim. And Maxim was still supporting David in the last years of his life when he couldn't get any work and stuff. And that all came out of a chance comment that somebody had said. And following threads like that is really, that's what I live for, really. Yeah, just unpicking threads like that. Two numbers, the same number jumps out at me, which is 51. Yeah, so David died age 51. The other thing that I talked to Paul Maxin about, his dad, Ernest Maxin died two or three years ago in his 90s. Nobody else that they worked with did. There's a period in the late 70s where David Nixon, William Hartnell, Mac Hulk, Brian Hales, Anthony Coburn, David Whittaker, they all dropped dead. Jack Pullman, who wrote I, Claudius, I have a letter from Jack Pullman on his deathbed to David Whittaker, which was in the pile of stuff that David's niece gave me but a whole series of them and I said to Paul why is that and he said dad didn't drink whereas everybody else drank Mm -hmm. and they all chain smoked yeah and you just see the toll of it and they all just they all just conk out Mm -hmm. and it's a cultural thing that if you were in the crew you couldn't smoke at work because it would the smoke would appear on camera but if you were the executive up in the control box where it was all glassed off, everybody chain smoked. So even if you weren't a smoker... It's passive smoking. Yeah, passive smoking. And it was really stressful. Live productions were really stressful. Two shots on camera five. That's about it. Stand by and cue Mrs Heaney. So not only were they all chain smoking, but they were drinking and whatever. It's amazing that they lived till the end of the 70s. Once you get that, you suddenly start going, oh, this explains the random fight they had. And why... Things on Doctor Who, when David left Doctor Who in 1969, why things were chaotic. I don't think I'm saying anything that people won't know, but the producer and script editor were just drunk and (laughs) would commission things and then not remember what they'd asked for. And all of this kind of stuff. So there's a kind of insight into the cultural thing now. You just can't work like that now. Look, yeah, so 51, he dropped dead, but also 51, he's attributed to 51 episodes... Nice. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Who. That's very good. That is very good. Thank you very much. Annoyingly, he is credited for episodes he didn't write. Yeah. And he also did a lot of work on episodes that are credited to other people because he was the story editor. But yes, yeah, that uh, I hadn't yes, I hadn't made that connection. What is David Whittaker's connection to Manchester? Oh, he was born in Nebworth, but he he was a Londoner through and through, and spent most of his life within the environs of what's now Television Centre. But he had some uh, work made in Manchester. He adapted a play called The Difficult Age about a stockbroker, a respectable stockbroker, whose daughter, who must be in her late teens, wants to elope with a zookeeper. Uh, sort of knockabout comedy. And that was uh, made in Manchester's North of England studio Uh, over Christmas 1960. Uh, He also wrote two episodes of a Granada series called Mr Rose. One of them has a chase sequence in Manchester 
and it's quite fascinating for going, oh, I know where that is, <laughs> that sort of thing. But more importantly, I think, more significantly, David's first wife was uh, a Liverpudlian called Joan, uh, June Barry. And in 1961, she was in Coronation Street. She was the first Corrie bride as Joni Walker. And there's, a, there's an interesting thing. Annie about, Walker's daughter. Yeah. And the irony of this is that Joan marries and moves to Derby and never comes back to Coronation Street. She comes out twice. So what that allowed was that whenever the actress playing Annie Walker wanted a break and a holiday, they'd go, oh, she's gone off to Derby. But also Annie Walker, who is a bit snooty and, and looks she down Coronation Street. She's the original Street. Hyacinth Bouquet, do you not think? Her daughter doesn't come back to Coronation Street because it's beneath her and she's escaped that. And there's a link to, because she and Ken Barlow have both trained as teachers. So there's that idea of education and social mobility and stuff. It's all tapping into that kind of stuff. Hello, Mr. Tadlocker. Then I said to tell you when it was ready. Oh, right, oh, 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 you don't know Joan, do you? No. She's Mr. and Mrs. Walker's daughter. Oh. This is Walter Potts. How's his own? But having been in Coronation Street in 1961, for Christmas 1963, this Christmas episode of Corrie, um, they do a This Is Your Life for Annie Walker. And characters from her past come back, including June Barry who's then in four episodes. Now, they recorded Coronation Street, I think, two days before broadcast, which means that June Barry was recording that Christmas episode while there are Dalek props on Shepherd's Bush Green for a photo shoot with people going, what the hell are those? Because the Daleks didn't make their screen debut until the following Saturday. So June probably missed the first Dalek episode go out because she was in Coronation Street. <laughs> Simon Gerrier talking to Caroline Whitehead. On to questions from the audience next. And the first was whether Simon had ever seen any evidence of blacklisting in his research at the BBC Written Archive. A producer, Philip Hinchcliffe, who was producer of Doctor Who in the mid-70s, he very politely, at a convention, was going round the dealer's room looking at our various wares. And he saw my book on the evil of the Daleks and said, how did you research this? To which I said, they've got all the paperwork at Caversham. And I went through it and they have production files for each story. And he laughed and said, as producer of Doctor Who, it was my job to put the paperwork into the official archive. So the first thing I would do when we struck a production when we'd finished the production was go through the production file and make sure there was nothing in it that was of any value at all <laughs> so it's o it's only about what people get paid so things for royalties and it's about the mechanics of stuff but anything juicy anything interesting anything like so and so had a fight or so and so had a spat that would all go which was uh, haunts me now that everything we think we know is just the bit we're allowed to see Yes, that kind of idea that there's nothing put on paper, but these decisions are being made, that is all over this. There's a thing in 1974 when David writes to the BBC hoping to get a job and his former head of department at, at the script unit, uh, Robin Wade, forwards this to the head of drama, Sean Sutton, and says something along the lines of, I've just had this from our old friend David Whittaker. And that's a really odd phrase to use. Does he mean, it's our old friend, we should get him a job? Or does he mean the complete opposite? And as we talk about in, in the documentary Looking for Davids, 
there's no record that Sean Sutton ever replied to David, which there would be, you would think. So that, that's all very odd. Next up was a two-part question. How did David Whitaker and the rest of the Verity fam, as nobody called them, navigate Sidney Newman's famous ban on bug-eyed monsters? Sidney Newman wasn't the only one who said there should be no bug-eyed monsters. Uh, in 1962, the BBC uh, script department had done a survey of science fiction, which is the and that report is the earliest dated thing in the production files for Doctor Who. So it was ke- clearly something they were drawing on as they developed the show. And that says no bug-eyed monsters. And I think Sidney Newman was just quoting that edict. We've done science fiction serials like Quatermass and A for Andromeda. Can we adapt science fiction novels as one-off plays? And they go, yes, time travel would work on television. Telepaths would work on television. Monsters just look rubbish. And that's kind of Sidney Newman's thinking. There are a number of interesting things about how David and Verity Lambert get the Dalek story into production, one of which is to not tell their bosses what they're doing. (laughs) So Terry Nation wrote a storyline that survives. It's about 26 pages of the whole storyline. And David, in commissioning scripts, writes a paragraph saying this is what the story is. And he doesn't use the word Dalek and he doesn't tell us that the creatures and he doesn't use the word creature or alien it's people. So as far as his bosses were concerned, what he'd commissioned was a story that had no monsters in it at all. Verity Lambert's memory was that they got away with this until near production when heads of department Donald Wilson and Sidney Newman read the scripts and hit the roof. And they were summoned to Donald Wilson's office, not Sidney Newman's as it is in uh, An Adventure in Space and Time, where they basically said, we don't have anything else. So we're going to have to do this one. There's a level of uh, schutzpah going on there from Verity Lambert, which I find extraordinarily admirable, but also shows a level of faith from her and David Whittaker, not only in the script, but in what Doctor Who should be. And I think there's some evidence that even before the Daleks was on the air and was a hit with the public, they were already trying to make Doctor Who more like that. So the Edge of Destruction was uh, commissioned as inside the spaceship. And the kind of gag of inside the spaceship is that there's something inside the spaceship and you think it's a monster. And then you realise that there is something inside the spaceship because the TARDIS is alive and that's the twist. But that setup that there's a monster is, I think, probably following in the footsteps of the Daleks. And once the Daleks has been a hit on TV, they cancel all their plans for the next few stories and they commission Terry Nation to write the Keys of Marinus really quickly. So they commission him just before they start production on Marco Polo, and it's the story to go out after it. So he's got to deliver the whole thing ready for production in about six weeks, which is terrifying Mm. as a thing. Um, But from that point, Doctor Who is then a show about monsters, and that's them. The questioner also said he saw Whitaker as Terry Nation's emissary on Earth. How boxed in did David Whittaker feel about that? They clearly hit it off, basically. There's some evidence that they... They worked on um, light entertainment shows, the same light entertainment shows in the late 50s, so probably knew each other, at least in passing. But a piece that David wrote for the screenwriter Quarterly in the autumn of 1963, where he basically says, I've just had this storyline from Terry Nation and it's the best storyline I've ever read and it's really exciting and fun... 
they worked really well and collaboratively, not only on TV episodes, but on books and comics and the stage play and the movies and stuff. And then there was a falling out, um, possibly more than one. I've, I've, it's in the book, but Paul Fishman, whose dad was the publisher of the Dalek Annuals, said he saw them have a falling out. Tim Coombe, who was great friends with David Whittaker, said word came back to the BBC that they'd fallen out making the stage play. Whatever the case, David still wrote for the Daleks afterwards. The, the power of the Daleks and the evil of the Daleks that he wrote are after this falling out. What exactly what went on? I think part of it is that David was doing all of this work and Terry Nation was making the money and David was probably a bit frustrated. David didn't work on the ITC series that, like The Baron and The Saint that Terry Nation was very well paid for. We spoke to Terry Nation's widow and she said, oh, I remember David and he was very nice and wouldn't say any more. And the final question was testing a theory that David Whittaker and his peers were creating the medium in a much freer space and time. Does that mean this was genuinely the much-touted golden age of television? Really useful for this sort of thing is something like Missing Believed White, where the BFI shows television that's been lost and has since been found. Because you get a really random selection of material and a lot of it is awful uh, but fascinating thank you hello and welcome to the show hello, 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 hello and to the show welcome <laughs> i watched an episode of basil brush where basil brush helps i think it's mr roy i might have got that wrong but basically helps mr roy chat to a girl on the beach and it's really inappropriate <laughs> for anybody let alone that it's a children's show but but that kind of low level sexism you see a lot in old telly an awful lot of old telly is dancing shows because they were relatively cheap to put on the problem is that we remember the best bits because those are the bits that stick in our memories and also are repeated and also referred to we don't really deal with the run of the mill of television so you do look back on it fondly but i think if you go through the paperwork on doctor who you can see all the same battles about management don't get this they've pulled the plug they've promised us this amount of money and now they've changed their minds donald bafferstock the chief of programs for bbc one has said doctor who can have 26 episodes he's now said no i said 20. he says we're going to have a six-month extension but that six-month extension includes the six weeks holiday that everybody's booked and also is to the end of broadcast. So actually the extension that I promised you is only four episodes. And we can't book any actors because none of them will commit to just an extension of four episodes. That's all going on in the summer of 1964. For all the technology has changed and the ways of making programmes have changed, the battles are all the same battles. I would be very interested in comparing notes with somebody like Stephen Moffat because he's not the producer now, so can probably say more mm. about those kind of things. What happens when the set isn't available? What happens when the studio facilities you think you've got are changed at the last minute? Shh, all of that's those, another book. Yeah, all of, the, all of those things. Yes, don't get me wrong, I love old telly and I, I'm really interested in it, but I think we need to be careful about imposing a kind of value judgment because I've watched the surviving episodes of David's song and dance shows and they do go on a bit. <laughs> 
<laughs> Simon Guerrier, who wrote David Whittaker in an exciting adventure with television, published by Ten Acre Films, it's out now at 17.99. Thanks to Caroline Whitehead and the Portico Library for allowing Zero Room to record the session. When we come back, our first full episode in 36 years, a nostalgic take on Classic Who with some of the voices from first time round and some new commentators too as we explore season 20. Hit subscribe and we'll see you in 2024.